Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. I remember as a, a young teenager and a new regular churchgoer learning about the religious aspects of the holidays that had previously been observed in my home on a mostly cultural basis. And so I, I came to appreciate the, the Christmas service that we had at, at this new church, uh, which was enhanced in my mind by the anticipation of the actual Christmas morning when we opened all those presents. And, uh, and I liked our Easter service all right, which of course lacked the prospect of presents, but usually marked the beginning of our school's spring break. But one thing they both had in common was that once the services were over, we were done with those observances. There was no dilly-dallying with Christmas stuff after Christmas or Easter stuff after Easter. When we were done, we were done, and we were on to other things. It was only many years later after I became a pastor that I started to appreciate the older more traditional practices of the observance of those holidays that extended them for several weeks after the individual days of, cel of celebration. After all, the awareness of the birth of Jesus and also of his resurrection should occupy our minds for quite some time, right? I mean, I think we would all agree that they're both really big deals. Well, as we continue to engage with the Easter story in Scripture, we find that a lot happened after the day that the empty tomb was discovered. I mean, watching Jesus die on a cross, seeing him prepared for burial and then sealed up in a tomb, and then him disappearing from the tomb and showing up again would make any sane person's head explode. So you can bet that there was a lot of processing going on with Jesus' friends during this time. And we see this in our gospel text for this morning. In, in John's account, only Mary Magdalene has seen Jesus in his resurrected state so far. But on that very same day in the evening, Jesus now shows up where most of the disciples were gathered, where they are quaking in fear because they figured that the religious authorities had a contract out on them. And Jesus shows up and he speaks out a very traditional greeting, peace be with you, the equivalent of shalom. And then he shows them his wounds. Now, that's kind of curious, isn't it? I mean, why do that? Why show them his wounds? Well, it, it might be that the disciples seeing Jesus suddenly appear inside a locked room would assume that they were seeing a, a specter, a, a ghostly but visible affirmation that Jesus' soul was gone from his lifeless body and he was sort of just checking in on them in a, in a rather spiritual sense. But in showing the wounds, Jesus reveals that he really had been nailed to the cross, really had been pierced with a sword, that the wounds were real and they were inflicted on human flesh, and that now it was his real self, his real body that stood before them. A body raised by God with evil and death off in the background wailing because their power had been broken. In other words, 
Jesus did that because he was really there. And that's what John wants his readers to know. And having showed up, Jesus does four things in succession. First of all, in greeting them with peace, peace be with you, he was doing more than just being cordial. Jesus spoke peace into a context of fear, a fear about something that certainly could happen given the events of recent days. After all, the, the disciples were now considered accomplices of a convicted criminal. But Jesus now standing before them on the other side of death, speaks peace with authority, not allowing the religious leaders to hold sway over the lives of God's people. Second, he sends them to do what God the Father sent Jesus to do. Now, clearly, Jesus did a lot of things like healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, and proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom being at hand. But these signs of God's kingdom were also prelude to the rebirth of God's own people, which was now being enacted in Jesus' resurrection. As Jesus had died on behalf of the people of God, so had he died for the people of the world. And now the disciples are being commissioned to be that rebirthed people of God. But they will not be that people out of their own power. Jesus now breathes on them and he tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, given what we've all probably read in Acts chapter 2, the part with the Holy Spirit falling on the disciples in the day of Pentecost, you would think that as Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on his friends, that something really spectacular would happen right about now. But it doesn't. However, something does happen. In breathing upon them, Jesus identifies his disciples as a new creation, similar to the way that God breathed life into the very first human being. They now have a new identity no longer as fearful renegades, but rather as ones filled with the Spirit of God and bound up with God's mission in the world. This is really important. Their identity is not separate from God's mission. Identity as God's people cannot be separated from God's mission in the world. They are bound together. It's not like, like people get to pick the one they like and then ignore the other. They like being God's people but don't care much about mission. Can't do that. And the disciples would soon learn this and they would walk it out for the rest of their lives. Well, the last of the four things is that Jesus charges them with forgiveness of sins. And he says something that usually causes us to wonder. He says this, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, of course, forgiving sins was something that Jesus did, often accompanied by physical healing and, and usually bringing offense to the religious leaders. And now the assignment comes to the disciples 
who would have understood that while it is God who forgives sins, they would now join Jesus in declaring God's forgiveness to be a reality. But what does it mean to retain or to keep or to hold sins? And why in the world would anyone want to do that? I mean, retaining or holding the sins of others seems like wanting to hold on to a like a rabid squirrel as if that was a reasonable thing to do. Well, Jesus offers up two possible things, forgiving and retaining. Now, of course, to forgive is to speak out the good news of God's reconciling love. But to fail to declare the truth about God's love and forgiveness, or, or to claim that God's love and forgiveness is not being poured out, would result in retaining sins, that is, holding them down, keeping them in place, and leaving people to languish in unforgiveness. Declaring God's forgiveness to the world is right at the heart of Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's wrapped up in being sent by Jesus just as he was sent by God the Father. It's about the way that identity in Christ is bound together and expressed in mission to the world. St. Paul expands on this in his letter to the church in Corinth that we heard read this morning. He says, so if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. For Paul, identity in Christ creates a newness that draws us into God's ministry of reconciliation to the world. Now, such ministry is, is multifaceted, just as it was with Jesus, and declaring forgiveness of sins is important enough that Jesus made sure to highlight that work to his disciples. Some years ago, one of my seminary professors wrote a, a book that explored God's forgiveness by imagining an encounter between Jesus and Judas Iscariot in that short period between their deaths and Jesus' resurrection. As the Apostles' Creed reminds us, Jesus descended to the dead, and Judas would certainly have been in the place of the dead, wherever that is. And in this imaginary but theological story, Jesus meets Judas there, and Judas wants to know this. Is there a limit to God's forgiveness? In other words, is Judas too far gone to ever be forgiven by God? Well, through one of the professor's students who worked in prison ministry, the book found its way into the hands of a young man who had committed a double murder, a crime that was highly sensationalized in the press, particularly here in California. And serving a life sentence for his crime, the young man asked if the professor would meet with him. And the professor agreed. And in a secured prison room, bound with chains and monitored by a guard, the young man asked questions 
about the possibility of forgiveness. He held the professor's book in his hand, its, its pages dog-eared and highlighted over and over with a marker. And at one point, the professor asked, if, if the two people you murdered could return to you right now, do you think they would forgive you? And the young man thought for a while, and then he replied, I think one of them would. Now this acknowledgement opened up the possibility in his mind that forgiveness, even from one victim, could theoretically happen. And the professor quickly responded, and Jesus forgives you too. Yes, the, the young man would remain a prisoner, suffering the consequences of his actions for the rest of his life. But forgiveness of sins was declared to him, a, a message of reconciliation that is at the heart of the gospel. I doubt that Jesus' disciples understood the implications of what Jesus was telling them at that time. They would have been so stunned by Jesus' reappearance that processing what was happening to them would just have to wait, probably after the day of Pentecost, when a whole lot of surprises would come their way. John's inclusion of Thomas in the narrative helps us to see that the disciples' minds were, very understandably, focused on Jesus' surprise appearance rather than on their own commissioning. And Thomas is not buying any of the stories about Jesus and is firm in his insistence that he will not change his mind until he sees and touches Jesus for himself. Now be honest, aren't you glad that Thomas is in the story? I don't know about you, but I am completely on board with his reluctance to believe something he hadn't seen for himself, especially something as mind-boggling as a resurrection from the dead. But regardless of the doubts, Jesus meets Thomas a week later, and he gives him what he needs. And Thomas believes, making the astounding theological claim, my Lord and my God. You know, there's a, another kinship that we have with Thomas that has nothing to do really with skepticism or doubt. We share with Thomas his first experience of hearing about Jesus from his friends, but not seeing Jesus for himself. And you know, we've all heard, we've read, we've prayed, but we haven't seen Jesus standing before us as the disciples did showing us his wounds and speaking directly to us. Since John's first audience for his gospel would have been distanced from these events by several decades, he offers them an invitation to join the ranks of those who had seen. And he says, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Even though we are separated from the resurrection story by centuries, we're still part of that audience. 
We're still invited into the story of Jesus so that we might believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, sent by God the Father, and that we may have life in his name. You know, the disciples initially thought that life after Jesus meant just going back to what they were doing before he arrived on the scene. But they soon learned that they had been drawn into his story in such a way that their identity as his followers would launch them into God's mission for the rest of their lives. You know, as, as we are, hopefully, nearing the end of this pandemic, it's, it's really good for us to reflect on our identity as a people in Christ, a people drawn into God's ongoing mission in the world. I mean, sometimes we might have wondered, how do we have unity in the church when we differ on so many things? You know, things politically, socially, even how we should really respond to the pandemic properly. We will never have true unity if unity depends on total agreement about everything. But we can experience unity in Christ. And how does Jesus bring us to that place? Well, it, it might help us to join in with John's original audience and return to Jesus' words that he spoke to his disciples and then let them become words for us as well. Jesus speaks his peace into our fear. In him, Peace is not simply the absence of conflict or threat. Peace is his presence with us, even in the midst of danger or disaster. And just as Jesus was sent by the Father, and just as Jesus sent his disciples, so does he send us. Our identity in Christ means that we are drawn into God's ongoing, reconciling mission in the world. This causes us to realize that our lives, whether as a gathered worshiping community or as persons in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and other locations, that we are to bear witness to Christ and to God's reconciling mission in the world. And Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, on his disciples. The life that we live in Christ is not one that we live out of our own strength or out of self-discipline or out of personal power. We live in Christ because the Holy Spirit resides within us. As St. Paul said in another letter that he wrote to the church in Rome, you are no longer ruled by your desires, but by God's Spirit who lives in you. People who don't have the Spirit of Christ in them don't belong to him. But Christ lives in you. So you are alive because God has accepted you, even though your bodies must die because of your sins. Yet God raised Jesus to life. God's Spirit now lives in you, and he will raise you to life by his Spirit. Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on them, and he breathes it on us. And finally, Jesus gave his disciples the authority to pronounce forgiveness of sins. 
And that same authority is granted to us as the people of the Spirit, as people in Christ, as the people of God. We are now a priesthood of believers who declare God's good news to the world as his agents, as his ambassadors. Now, th this is a great story to live in, isn't it? A and yes, we all struggle from time to time with various obstacles to our trust in Jesus. We have doubts and discouragement and fear, but just as Jesus was not hindered by any material or mental obstacles when he returned to his disciples, so is he not hindered by our obstacles. We bring those things to him in the confidence that he will provide us with what we need to trust him. My friends, the story of Jesus' resurrection is not over. And I mean that in more than just a liturgical sense or in the way that church services are being organized. I mean that the risen Christ continues to meet us, breathing out his spirit, inviting us and sending us. And there is no obstacle that is too big for Jesus to push through to come to us. All we need to do is welcome him when he shows up. Like those friends of Jesus, those first disciples, um, we know that we've got stuff in our lives. We know we have obstacles, some of which are self-created, some that were imposed upon us, some that just come out of left field, I guess. And so we, we come before God today with confidence, knowing that we can speak these truths about our lives, about our own failures, our shortcomings, our sins, and recognize that they are not retained. They are not held down. They are forgiven. And so we come before God to do that today. It's an act of truth-telling that we do together, telling the truth about our lives. It's also called confession. And so now we come before God, and together we confess. Lord, you come to us through our barriers and our unbelief. You meet us in our doubts, and you reveal yourself to us in fresh and startling ways. But we confess that we have heard your voice in prayer, yet plugged our ears. We have seen your face in the pages of Scripture, but turned away. We have felt your touch through the hands of another, and still pulled away. Please forgive us. Amen. And now, my friends, the God of love and power forgives us and frees us from our sins. He heals and strengthens us by his Spirit and raises us to new life in Christ our Lord. Amen.